All right, now we open our Bibles, if you would, to uh, the epistle of 1 John chapter 5. And we are just getting a start in a new study in this little epistle that was written by the Apostle John. Uh, For over three years, we've been studying Paul's epistles of Ephesians and Philippians. And we're switching authors now. We're going to one of the little letters that was written by John very close to the end of his life. Now, this may not seem to be too significant at first that we move from one author to another. But as we go through this letter, I think you'll see that the styles of these two apostles is very much different because they are different men. Now, we believe that the scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, that as we read God's word, this is definitely God's word to man. But inspiration of scripture does not mean dictation. The Holy Spirit did not dictate the words to the men who wrote scripture. Now, if he did, we would expect that every book would look exactly the same, that uh, every book would be in the same style, that it would use the same terminology, the same sentence structure, same development of arguments, everything would be the same. But the Bible is not written that way. Instead, the Holy Spirit used men to write the scriptures, but he allowed the personalities of those men to shine through. And so as we look at different authors of Scripture, we do notice uh, the different way that they write. So John was a different man from Paul. He had a different temperament. He had a different background. He had the very same Savior, but they weren't the same men. They speak the same truths of the Scriptures and of the Savior, but they speak and they write in a different way. And so as we move away from Paul, we see a different approach with the Apostle John. Now, if you'll look at 1 John 5, verse number 13, I think that we can identify this as the major theme of the epistle. John here writes, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So John here is writing to save people, those who have already believed in Christ as Savior, and he writes to them in order that they might have assurance of their salvation. Now, we're going to get into that a little bit later, but it always seems to be the character of John as we go through this book that he's very direct with his statements. He never minces words. We noticed that when we were uh, studying the Gospel of John a couple of years ago, that John was very precise about why he wrote the Gospel. He said, I've used all these different things concerning the miracles of Christ to show you that Jesus is indeed the very Christ. He is the Messiah, and all of these things are so that you would believe in him. So that's what the the theme of the first part of the message that we talked about last week. It was more having to do with the man, John, exploring a little bit about him. And so our discussion last week was about the apostle of the epistle. Uh, John was not the man that many people supposed him to be. Uh, Last week we looked at some of the artistic depictions that have been made of John throughout the centuries. And almost always, you see John with this weepy-eyed look. He's a dopey-looking type of person. He appears to be effeminate. But I, I don't think that's the, the picture that the Scriptures give of John. He was very much different from that. John was a weather-beaten, hardened fisherman. He was a no-nonsense kind of guy who was just willing to get into your face and tell you things exactly as they are. Jesus described him and his brother James as being sons of thunder. And I think that he meant that James and John were both types that would speak their mind and they would ask questions about it later. I don't know if this is a quality of fishermen or not, uh, to be this kind of a person. Ricky, are fishermen normally this way, just brash and open? 
most of them are, okay? Well, Peter was that way. And we noticed by looking at, uh, you know, his, his character in scriptures that he was also that way. And not coincidentally, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were all partners in a fishing enterprise. And so those were the first apostles that were called. And they were, uh, not coincidentally, the four closest to Jesus. Peter, James, and John were the innermost disciples. And uh, Andrew was just a little bit further out. So the apostle John was one who was very close to the Lord. But John was not one who would exploit that closeness. Uh, Rather than laud himself, he is much more demure. So that when we look into the books that he's written, he never talks so much about himself or never even mentions his name. The Gospel of John does not contain his name. And uh, the three epistles that he writes here later, that one of these we're studying now, he never mentions his name in these. And so he was much more concerned, especially in the later years of his life, that he would exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the most important thing to him. And so this thunderous apostle, as he began to grow older, then became the tender apostle. And again, I don't think that that means that he was effeminate, but he was very sensitive to the needs of others. And he thought that it was very important uh, to God's people that they love God supremely and that they love each other. And John never talks about a syrupy kind of love that you find in most churches today. Uh, John believed that love was grounded upon the truth. And he's always standing for the truth. And he never lets the truth uh, get in the way of unity. And he's not going to let love get in the way if, uh, if the truth is not spoken. Because love is built on truth. And so that means more often than not that when you read John, you find that his love is a tough kind of love. He doesn't accommodate any error for the sake of unity. So there's a lot more that we could say about the apostle on a personal level. And I'm not going to go much more into that tonight. Uh, If you want to know more, then I refer you back to last week's message. So this evening, we want to move on in our introduction to more uh, talking about the epistle itself. An introduction to the epistle and the purpose of John writing this letter. So we're going to look at, secondly, the alarm of the epistle. I suppose that one of the most frequent questions that I'm asked by new prospects and even by new Christians is why are there so many different denominations? Why are there so many churches out there? And isn't it true that most churches or nearly all the churches believe essentially the same thing? I mean, after all, they're all Christians. Well, the truth is that not everybody who says that they are a Christian is a Christian. And no, we don't essentially all believe the same things. There's a great deal of diversity of belief. And so there are many groups that say that they're Christian that don't even resemble at all New Testament Christianity. For example, there's a church right down the street with the name, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. And many people think that they're Christians. And the only difference between them and us is there's just a little bit of difference of interpretation of Scripture. But they're not Christian. And they couldn't consider that to be to have any part of Christ whatsoever. And so we tend to think that in the first century, when there wasn't all of this diversity, you didn't have all the denominations, that there wasn't really a diversity of belief. And so anybody that said they were a Christian was a Christian. But that's a false assumption. 
because to the, at the middle to the end of the first century, there was already a lot of apostasy uh, growing among churches. It was growing wildly. In fact, when Galatians was written, which was about 50 AD, the apostle Paul was already addressing doctrinal problems. And so he wrote to the church of Galatia with this, with this comment. He says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Now, Paul there was dealing with the uh, heresy of mixing Judaism with Christianity. There were some that had infiltrated the churches, and they were telling people that they had to keep Old Testament law, and uh, that was a necessary requirement for their salvation. Well, those false doctrines were coming into the church just 20 years from the time of Pentecost. So at this point of John's ministry, near the end of the first century, there was another heresy that was growing rapidly, and that was called Gnosticism. Now, there's a, a lot of different variations of Gnosticism, but essentially uh, it boils down to a mixture of Greek philosophy with New Testament Christianity. And most notably, it was an attack upon the hypostatic union that Christ was both human and divine. And so they were teaching that Jesus was just a man. And when he was born, there wasn't a virgin birth, but Jesus was an ordinary baby, not different from any other baby that's born. And so later when Jesus became a man and he was baptized, that was the point that the Spirit of God entered into him. And so the Spirit was just really using the body of this man named Jesus. And so when he was crucified, the, the Holy Spirit departed from him and went back into heaven. Well, what that is, is really, among a lot of other things, uh, particularly it's a denial of the bodily resurrection of Christ, that it was a spiritual resurrection. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is written before John writes uh, this epistle, Paul was already combating that heresy. Uh, and that's why he writes about the resurrection in John or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So he's defending the resurrection of Christ, that it truly was a bodily resurrection. Well, the heresy that Christ did not arise in his body is still around today. I mean, most of the heresies that you see are very old heresies. They've just been recycled over and over again. And that doctrine, most notably, is found in the doctrine of the Jehovah Witnesses. Now, they've cleaned it up and polished it up a little bit and changed things around, but they also do not believe that Christ arose in the body. So that was one of the earliest forms of Gnosticism. And then by the end of the first century, it had uh, transformed into a belief that's called docetism. And docetism is a little bit different because it denies that Jesus ever had a body. They say that Jesus was more like an apparition. He was a, a metaphysical thing, not really having a real body. And we're going to examine both of those along with uh, some other teachings in the next message. And we'll look a little bit more at that. But the underlying premise of all of this was that the Greeks... Uh, had this opinion that the body is inherently evil. There's nothing good that can actually come from the physical body. And so then to think that there would actually be a resurrection and, uh, and a material body would come out of the grave and go into heaven, that, that was just simply unacceptable. So we see forms of that as well today, uh, metaphysical types of teaching. You find that in the Christian scientist's writings. It's present in Emmett Fox's writings, and he's the one who was the a spiritual leader of Alcoholics Anonymous. But any teaching of metaphysics is anti-Christian. Metaphysics essentially teaches mind over matter so that your only 
really what you imagine yourself to be. And so if you're sick, it's only because your imagination tells you that you're sick. And if you just change your thinking a little bit, modify your thinking and and get a positive outlook on things, then your troubles will go away. Now, you probably recognize that that is also a piece of the prosperity gospel that's being taught. That's the positive thinking modules of Joel Osteen and and Robert Schuller also contain those very kinds of ideas. So you see why John is alarmed? Uh, Here is teaching that's infiltrating the church. It's robbing the people of their joy. They didn't really even know how to deal with sin any longer because uh, they were being told that sin is a product of the material body and it has nothing at all to do with the spiritual man. And so they didn't know what to do with sin. And these perversions that they were teaching were attacking the very core of the doctrines of the faith. The virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ, and, and the humanity of Christ. And what this did to the people was to take their joy away. Because you can't have joy unless you really know who God is. So those doctrines were nonsense then. They're nonsense today. I mean, it's not Christian and it has nothing at all to do with the gospel of Christ. And we'll get into that a little bit more and we'll see how John refutes that. So here's what John is looking at then with such alarm. He's looking at false leaders that have come into the church. So we notice what he says in chapter 2, verse number 18. He says, little children, it is the last time, as ye have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. We're studying the Antichrist in our study of Revelation on Sunday nights. And here we find that John warns earlier than the writing of the book of Revelation that the one-time big Antichrist was coming. Uh, This is the one who will be the deceiver of the whole world, greatest deceiver the world has ever seen. But he tells them that before that one abomination comes, that there are going to be all kinds of little Antichrists that will come. And he was facing them even at that time. So these were false teachers that would come into the church with heresies. They would lead people astray and they would lead them into things like Gnosticism and Docetism. And they brought with them a false gospel that when believed actually sends people into the fires of hell. Now you may at times think that I'm a little bit too harsh on a false doctrine that's being taught. But I promise you, if John were here today and he was watching TV preachers, he would say to us, this is exactly what I've been telling you about. And so he would turn on the TV and to Osteen and and, and Copeland and Hen and Jakes, and he would take out his little pad and he would make notes about that, and he would say Copeland, and he would write beside that Antichrist. And Jakes, he would write beside it Antichrist. And Meyer, Antichrist. Hen, very weird Antichrist. Osteen, very pretty Antichrist. And, and that's how he would look at them. You see, that's who's taking the leadership in Christianity today, and they're not really Christian at all. Now, the bad news about all that is, is you see it on the national level. It's very bad. You can watch it on your television. But those aren't the only heresies that are being taught, and huge ministries aren't the only ones that are teaching the lies of the Antichrist. Because we find it creeping into the evangelical churches right here in our own area. When churches begin to uh, teach against hell and say there is no eternal hell, uh, then they are denying the doctrines of Christ. It's an antichrist who who preaches that. And so people today, uh, since they don't like hell, they, they come up with doctrines like annihilationism. That, well, yes, well, if there is a hell, then people are burned up very quickly. And what that does, it devalues the atonement of Christ and attacks the holiness of God. And at the same time, it questions the nature of sin. 
And what it does, it actually gives sin a better status because no longer does sin against the holy God require infinite punishment. It, in effect, teaches that sin can actually be paid for by man and the price of sin is man's existence. Now, John was alarmed by that kind of teaching. It attacked Christ and attacks the core of the gospel. So leadership in churches has been affected by that. And what do you suppose happens when leaders of church are teaching false doctrine? Well, what happens and naturally follows is that you get false followers. You see, when the gospel is attacked, you no longer have a true gospel in the church, and so those who believe it and come into the church are false followers. Well, it's really sad today that uh, Christian churches, quote, unquote, are tailoring their worship to people who don't like church. For instance, like the purpose-driven church tries to market the gospel with a Madison Avenue technique, and they hope that the end product that they come up with will be acceptable to the masses. But the truth of it is, the true gospel of Jesus Christ is never going to be acceptable to the masses. And that's because the one who is the gospel himself was rejected by the masses. Now, they followed him for a little while. As long as Jesus was feeding them and fattening them up, they were happy to follow him. But when he got into the areas where he started talking about the cost of discipleship, what it really meant to follow him and, and, uh, and, the, and the difficulties of being a, a Christian and trusting him as they should, that's when the people began to leave. They turned tail and they ran from Jesus. But do you remember, they did come back. And when they did come back, when the multitudes came back together, what did they do? They crucified him. And folks, I'm telling you now, the gospel of Rick Warren is, is a gospel that crucifies the true gospel. It murders the true gospel. It's not recognizable any longer, and it makes a false following. Now, we notice in verse number 19 of chapter 2 that John gives the results of following false leadership. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So what happens is that eventually these kinds of people are not going to stick in a church like Berean. It's because they're looking for something else. Uh, They're looking for an emotional setting. Uh, they're looking for music that makes their feet move and their bodies sway and give them heart palpitations. Uh, they're looking for a sensual appeal of good, good, good vibrations. And that's what they're after. John says, well, they're going to leave. And when they do, it's going to prove where their hearts really are. Their hearts are not set on Christ. They want to please the flesh. And it will be to their destruction. Now, one of the things that you've heard me say before is that when people make music a standard for their worship, and they dismiss what's being taught from the pulpit as really being relatively unimportant. What they've done is they've gone into uh, a type of self-worship. I mean, it's what pleases their flesh, and it's not God-worship. And at that point, it becomes pretend Christianity. You know, when a preacher comes to church and he shows up in a T-shirt and tattered blue jeans, you can almost, almost mark it down that the truth is going to be tattered as well. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that that truth is in the clothes that you wear? I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying there is an odd correlation between the way that people dress and what comes out of their mouths, isn't there? I mean, uh, I've never seen one of those ministries that has that kind of approach to the gospel of Christ that dress the way that they do that ever had a God-centered doctrinal approach to their ministries. There is no emphasis on that. Now, on the other hand, you may want to argue that, and you may say, well, uh, it's not the clothes that, that do this, because look at Osteen. 
I mean, he dresses in Armani. So, touche, it's not the clothes that actually, that actually make the difference. But John is alarmed at what he saw. Here, here the church is headed downhill. It's only 60, within 60 years at the beginning of the church. And John sees it sliding down. And so what he wants to do is to step in and to stop that slide. And so he's not going to beat around the bush with his doctrine. And so in this little book here that he writes to these people, he doesn't wait and see about anything. He doesn't say, well, give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe things will straighten up. And he's not the kind of guy who says, well, all of us are working for the same place after all. Not John. John was a fixer. And the only way this could be fixed was with a straightforward approach to get back to the doctrines of Christ post-haste. So he's not going to wait around. And so that's why he's so direct. Well, let's look at one more part of this introduction. And this would be the assurance of the epistle. John has a style about him. And his style is, is if you do this, then this follows. And if you've got this right, then you can be assured that you're one of God's children. Now, all of this false doctrine is flying around. Uh, There's all kinds of conflicting things that are being said. And ultimately, that left the people very unsettled about where they stood with Christ. And so John has these tests that he puts into this letter. And he has the test that you apply. And he says, if you pass the test, then you have grounds for assurance. Now, there are three uh, tests that are put into these scriptures throughout the five chapters. They're kind of scattered around. Uh, but he addresses, uh, he addresses true Christianity in three different ways. Now, the first test that he gives is obedience to commandments. Now, notice what he, how straightforward he is with his statement in 1 John 2, verse 3. He says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So how do you know that you're a Christian? No is a very important word in First John. And we're going to see it over and over again. How do you know that you're a Christian? Well, according to John, you start out very simply. You test yourself to see if you obey God's commandments. Now, he says in the fourth verse of that same chapter, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So these are very troubled people. And so what John does, he just cuts to the chase. And he comes with a very clear statement. A child of God is one who obeys God. And so are they real converts? Well, if their lives aren't changed and they act like they, just, like they did before, if they don't start living according to God's commandments, then the answer is no, they're not God's children. Mark those kinds of people off. Now, none of us is perfect. We know that. I mean, we're not going to be perfect until we shed this old body that we're in and and, uh, get rid of the old nature, and Christ renews this body and glorifies it. But it should be that the general direction of every person who is a Christian, every person's life who is a Christian, your general direction should be towards obedience. For example, if the Word of God teaches you not to fornicate, and you know that, and you just keep on doing it, then what would make you think that you're a Christian? If you know that drugs and alcohol are not consistent with the life of Christ, and yet you continue with that without any kind of chastisement or any conviction about it, then what would make you think that you're a Christian? And then what about this? Going to church, hearing the Word of God. If you know that's consistent with biblical commandments, but you don't like to hear the Word, and you don't like to go to church, and you're bored with all the things that we're doing here, then what would make you think that you're a Christian? 
In other words, if you're going to write down all the criteria that you need for assurance that to know that you're really saved and you find out that you don't like what God says, you don't like hearing God's word, you're not interested in worship and ministry, then where are you drawing your assurance from? What could possibly make you think that you're truly a Christian? I mean, is it something that you made up? That Christians are people who act like me and so I think that I'm a Christian? And a lot of people have that religion, this spiritual religion that they have. It's what I think. And I draw all my spiritual enlightenment, enlightenment from what I think. And so I draw my hope from heaven, for heaven, for what I think. From what, what, what your thought processes are. But what you think really doesn't matter unless you're thinking like God. That's what makes the difference. Now there's a lot more of this as we go through this. Assurance comes from the confidence that you're keeping God's commandments. But is that all? Commandments, is that the only test that you would have to prove that you're a Christian? Well, I would ask you then, uh, how many of you have some pretty decent neighbors that live around you? I mean, how many of you have neighbors that don't cheat on their wives or their husbands and neighbors that go to work on time and neighbors that support their families and neighbors that mow their lawns and rake their leaves just like they're supposed to? I mean, a lot of times neighbors who aren't saved act more like Christians than we do. And so John is not going to leave assurance in, in this one category, just the keeping of commandments. So he has another test that we find in, the, in 1 John, and that's faith from a right confession. This goes beyond the obedience, te- obedience test because people can be moral in a sense of the word without being Christians. Look at the scribes and the Pharisees that, that Jesus had to deal with. Those were people who thought that they could meet every moral test that you could possibly put in front of them. And remember that rich young ruler who, who came to Jesus. And when Jesus talked to him about commandments, Jesus, uh, the man said, well, I've kept all the commandments from my youth up. Or at least he thought that he had. And so John doesn't stop with commandments for that very reason. Because there are a lot of people that, as we would think, are pretty good moral people. So he moves on to something else. And he goes on to a doctrinal test. What do you confess about the truth of salvation? Where do you place your faith? Now look at the beginning of chapter 4, verse number 1. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. Now John is fighting the heresies of Gnosticism and Docetism, uh, the, 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 the teaching that denied the virgin birth and the humanity of Christ. And so this is why he says there in verse number 2, uh, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And then he goes on and says those who say that he didn't, they're not of God. So John's very straightforward with that. And he's also straightforward with these other things. Uh, you think about the metaphysical stuff of Emmett Fox and Edgar Cayce and, and, and uh, Mary Baker Eddy. He says if you have that kind of belief, then you can't be a Christian. And likewise, if you're a Jehovah Witness or you're a Mormon, you can't be a Christian. 
Now, John, of course, is dealing with a particular type of heresy in the book. But without going into all of the things that a person, that, that could possibly be there, he, he just makes a general statement here. So he generalizes it into uh, uh, other, uh, other areas, and he says, try the spirits. Now, he's going to deal with specific doctrines of Gnosticism. We'll get into that a little bit later. But how does he broaden the approach to it? He says, believe not every spirit, but what you must do is try those spirits to see if they are of God because there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. And so there are many different doctrines that have to be considered. For instance, if somebody teach that baptism is essential for salvation, then that person is not of the Spirit of God. Do they teach that you have to keep sacraments to be saved? Then they're not of the Spirit of God. Do they teach that some man has the ability to grant forgiveness of sins, and so they tell people to go into confessional booth? That is not of the Spirit of God. And does he teach that you have to pray to Mary and, and ask the saints to intercede for you? That person is not a spirit of the Spirit of God. And you can go on. Is it somebody who preaches that healing is in the atonement and the only sick Christians are the ones that don't have enough faith? That person is not of the Spirit of God. And do they teach, like many of the Word of Faith people do, that you are a little God? As a matter of fact, that's one of the main teachings of Kenneth Copeland. You are a little God, and you can speak your desires into existence. That person is not of the Spirit of God. Now, why do I say, then, none of those things come from the Spirit of God? Well, the reason is there's only one determiner. It's not church tradition. It's not what man says. It's not what Berean Baptist Church says. And you can't count on what you think either. It comes from and must be identified with the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And if the Bible doesn't teach it, if it doesn't come out of the Bible, then it's not of the Spirit of God. Now that's a short version of what John teaches concerning the doctrinal test. It requires more study, and so we're going to go through that as we get further into the book. Now, somebody would say about that then, well, if you're talking about doctrine, everybody has a different interpretation of the Scripture. And so we have to talk about that too, don't we? I'm sure that people came to John and said, well, John, that's your interpretation. And we're going to see why when we get in those first three verses of, of the first chapter, the value of actually John knowing Christ, how important that was to his teachings. But there will be a lot of people that say, well, as they would say to me, well, that's your interpretation. There's lots of interpretations. So you can't leave it at the keeping of commandments, and you can't leave it at the doctrinal test. And so he has one more that can tell you whether you're really a Christian. And the third one is love from a heart of conviction. And really, this is the highest principle that's taught in this book. Obedience to commandments and faith in the right confession do what? They lead you to love from a heart of conviction. Now, he says in verse 7 of chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. You see how... Simple and direct, that is. Very, very simple. So assurance comes from a heart of love for God and a heart of love for each other. Now, the two greatest commandments are what? Didn't Jesus say the two greatest commandments are to love God with all of your heart? And then he also said that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said all of the law hangs on those two commandments. Now, you see how that feeds right back up to the previous statements? You know that you're a Christian if you keep God's commandments, and those commandments are hanging on love for God and love for each other. And so the commandments will drive you to the two greatest principles. 
And then faith in Christ assures you that you know who God is because Jesus said, if you know me, then you know the Father. Now, surely the Sermon on the Mount has taught us this, that we can't keep any of the commandments unless we know Christ. We have to know Christ's active obedience to God's law because that is what is given to us. And it's the only obedience by which we can ever keep any of God's laws with a right motive. So this little epistle of 1 John is written to straighten out these issues. And so in verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, These things are written so that you might know that you have eternal life. So these are are some of the themes we're going to talk about in 1 John. The underlying issues are commandments, the keeping of commandments, having the right confession, and the love that comes out of a heart of conviction. And John says if you want to have assurance, those are the areas that you have to look to. And so this is a great little book about assurance. We're going to see how John unfolds these arguments in such a wonderful way as we go through and we study about assurance in 1 John. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to look in your word tonight. And Lord, we're just uh, so excited about getting into this little epistle of 1 John and and seeing uh, what John has to tell us here and how we can truly know that we're Christians and just be people uh, that know that our faith is in the right place. And so we thank you for that, Lord. Bless, Bless us as we leave this place tonight. And, and Lord, help us to be people that want to share what we know here with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing.